I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to This Week in Oil & Gas. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Woo! <laughs> Welcome in, Mr. LaCour. Uh, I hope you weren't doing that just for me. Um, no, man, I'm fired up. You know, we had the Houston <laughs> Energy Breakfast this morning. I, I didn't sleep last night. Just like last week, I think the shows are better when I don't sleep, right? <laughs> yeah. We'll let our audience tell us that, but it's great to be here. <laughs> great to have you, sir. Um, so I'm James Hahn II from TriRocket.com. We're a sales-driven marketing firm. Our tagline is targeted traffic, qualified leads, and closed sales. That says the whole story. What about you, Mark? Yeah, Mark with ModalPoint.com, we are the oil and gas sales experts, and you can actually ask Google, and it will tell you we are the oil and gas sales experts. <laughs> right, right. You're welcome. Um, so, <laughs> so we've got some things to dive into today. We've got a bunch of stories from a certain country around the world that listens to us uh, almost as much as the UK and Canada, and what what would you guess that country would be? What was your first guess when I told you? I said Brazil, and then I said, I think, uh, Angola, or said Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, I wouldn't be surprised by Nigeria either, right? We're always talking right. about Nigeria. It's China. Yeah, I was totally shocked by that. It's China, and, and, and I, I was as well. So who do, you think, who, who do you think is listening to us in China, Mark? Well, it's either expats um, that are working in, in China or it's uh, people or it's Chinese people that work in the oil and gas industry. I, we'd love to know the answer to that. So whoever you are that's listening to us in China, reach out to us and let us know. We'd love to hear your story. Absolutely. So you can um, you can tweet us um, at James Han the second. That's James Han II. Right. And then um, Mark LaCour is at Mark with a K underscore L-A-C-O-U-R. Or they can join our LinkedIn group. Yep. And uh, like I said, introduce yourself. We'd love to know who's listened to us in China. Absolutely. We want to hear your stories. So let's dive into some Chinese stories. All and, right. Uh, and I am going to throw in the link just just to annoy you. I'm going to throw in the link to, <laughs> to Mr. Trump saying China for five minutes. It is annoying. <laughs> it's hilarious, too. <laughs> All right. So China unveils plan for partial privatizations as economy cools. Yeah, so this is um, this was a bit shocking when I read this. So basically, what's happened is there's I think 111 companies that the government owns in China, and the economy in China is slowing down, and so the Chinese government has figured out that it needs to privatize these companies to try to stimulate growth, uh, sort of like what you just saw happen in, in Mexico just recently, where they privatized part of the nationalized oil company Pemex. Yeah, we're gonna. Um, I, yeah, I, I didn't see this one coming. It's it's a damn good idea. Um, we'll see what happens. It takes off. It's being able to implement those type of reforms and cultural changes uh, in any country is hard, and it's going to be especially hard in China. So, um, you know, like I said, great idea. Let's see how the execution goes. It's, it's still a managed economy at the end of the day, though, right? Yeah, but what the, what they're going to do is is now they're going they're since they can privatize some of this. It's and especially these 111 companies companies that operate globally, then they could start um, actually the whole um, standard rules of business and start applying to that. And that type of uh, counter checks and balances actually for the long run is very beneficial. You end up making, for instance, good products that people actually buy instead of making the products the Chinese government tells you to make. Um, but the, the initial switch is, is going to be rough because they're used to being propped up and being run by the government. And now they have to go out and compete in, in the whole world in, in the economic sense. So it'd be interesting to see how this thing rolls. 
Yeah, I'm I, to say I'm skeptical um, would be an understatement. But yeah, I mean, privatization is awesome. I just wonder how much uh, entrepreneurial spirit they could have, you know, with that much top down uh, leadership going on. Right. It's uh, it, but it's there. It exists there. Right. Um, you and me and probably our entire audience gets pinged by people from China trying to sell us stuff all the time. So this would be a way for the government to kind of unleash um, that and let's see where it goes. Well, I wanted to start there just so that we could because we really haven't spent much time talking about China. And so since since they had that thing going on in the economy, but let's shift gears into what this show is really about, which is oil and oil and gas and uh, upstream, midstream, downstream. So PetroChina slump seen ignoring value of oil pipeline spinoff. Yeah. So just like here in the in the States and actually in a lot of the world right now, uh, PetroChina um, owns a lot of assets, right? A lot of upstream ads, assets, midstream assets, downstream assets. And because of the, the drop in crude oil, PetroChina as a whole has been devalued about 45%, I believe. But the midstream, the pipeline um, group within PetroChina is rocking and rolling, is doing well. So what they're asking to do is, is for PetroChina to sell off its, what's the part of their business that's making money, which is their midstream or their pipeline uh, group, and then let the rest of the, the company deal with the low crude oil prices. It's, it's just great financial strategy. Um, we'll see if it actually uh, happens. So it's diversification then? It's it's diversification, but it's it's if you think about it, if you have a part of your business that's rocking and rolling and the rest of your business isn't, why would you not separate them for, so that the one that's growing can actually grow? versus being held back and choked down by the part of the business that's not. So they're, in essence, totally separating. They're making two different entities then? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. Just like ConocoPhillips split its refining business from its um, upstream business. Same same type of deal. How does that work? Because you is that have to do with stock splits? Or is that a whole other um, thing? Well, what what happens? It, there's it depends on what if it's private or, or public companies. If it's a public company, what happens is um, the people, the stockholders, get a chance to to own um, shares in both companies, or they get bought out at whatever the price was when the deal was made. It says here China has about one hundred and twenty thousand kilometers of oil and gas pipelines. That's a lot, right? Yeah, that's a lot. That's- <laughs> That's thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. And I think it's kilometers. It may be kilometers in Michigan, but I think it's kilometers. Yeah, probably. Probably. That's my Michigan coming out. All right. So uh, what do we got up next? All right. Well, you you touched on Mexico. Um, Yeah. So we've got from The Economist, the two Mexicos, and and then China comes on in there. So what's going on in Mexico? Because uh, actually at the Houston Energy Breakfast this morning, I believe it was Skip York who said, that it's the first time in 80 years they've allowed outside investment in? Yeah, and and unfortunately, it's been a flop. Um, a, a bunch of stuff just wasn't even bid on, but that's a separate story. So this story in um, The Economist is really a good story, and it, it shows something a lot of Americans have never been exposed to. So it's talking about the, the dual parts of Mexico. You have one part that's modern, that's moving into, well in the 21st century that people um, – um, have lots of money, nice houses, nice cars, but there's also another part of Mexico where it has real poverty. I'm going to tell you something a lot of our viewers probably would not guess happens anywhere in the world, but it's a daily life in Mexico. So the poor kids in Mexico, they don't, there's no um, food stamps in Mexico. What happens is the poor kids wait in line at restaurants to be eat the scraps off the people's plates 
that that pay to eat food at the restaurant. That's how Mexico feeds its poor kids. Now that sounds so below you know what anything would happen in U.S. and Europe, but that's the norm in Mexico. That's the de- depth of the poverty there. And then you have the other side. You have the really um, well-off financially um, growing part of the Mexico economy um, that's in, in you know totally totally opposite of the poverty that they have. And a lot of it has to do with the class in Mexico, which we don't have here in the States, and it's almost gone in Europe. Whereas in the U.S., it doesn't matter who you were born to, whether you're born to a rich family or poor family, you can make your own fortune. And that's how people in America think. It's not like that in Mexico. If you're not born in the right family, the right class, you don't get the right education. You don't get the right opportunities, the right exposure to make something better of yourself. And so um, this is a good article explaining how you have that duplicity in the Mexico Mexican culture. And and then how does oil and gas play into this? Because the people that run the oil and gas market are the people that come from the right families, which then further increases their wealth and their ability to send their kids to great schools and international travel and all that stuff. Whereas the poor people do the grunt work, right, in the oil and gas industry up there, and they're, and they're not allowed to have those opportunities. So it's, it's, yeah, the old school society where whatever your last name is, that relegates you to a life of misery or total wealth. Yeah. And, and it's changing slowly, but surely in Mexico. But, um, you know, if, if you travel outside of the U S and go to countries like Brazil or Mexico, Guatemala, um, you see this and it's all over the place and it's, it really makes you appreciate what we have back here in the U S. That's very interesting. Okay. Well, let's hope that, that, that moves in the right direction because yeah, that's disturbing children waiting in line, um, to eat scraps. Yeah. Let's do something about that. We have to move on over to Canada, though, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> because they are behind the U.S., which surprisingly, so that was the statistic, uh, 65.6% of our audience. It's like almost half of our audience is, is not in the U.S. It's crazy. That's um, cool. But so, uh, so we've got, can Canada's oil sands survive low oil prices? Yeah, and the answer to that, honestly, is no. Um, it's not, it's uh, oil sands are the most expensive oil to get out of the ground. It's more expensive than deep water, ultra deep water. Shell's done a lot to actually make it even viable, right? Before Shell came on the scene, you couldn't even get the oil out of the ground and, and make a, make a profit at all. And so the problem is it it requires so much mechanical intervention. So it's not a reservoir where you basically drill into a pool of oil. It's not shale where you go in and you frack and you're able to extract those hydrocarbons. It's literally underground mixed with sand. So it's closer to mining than actual oil, oil production. Mm-hmm. So they go in and they either strip mine or they uh, heat underground, and that's how they're able to extract it. But um, it's very expensive, and at this low crude price, it's just not economically viable. Now, I will say this, though. Um, it's heavy crude, which the U.S. refineries have a big appetite for. And so we need some of that heavy crude from Canada or from Mexico or from Middle East to mix with our sweet crude so that we can actually refine in our, in our refinery. So that, that gives them a little bit of hedge on the price. But in this low crude market, um, oil sands is just not viable. So it says here, uh, most experts agree that capital intensive oil sands projects are marginal, if not loss making in the 45 to $60 range. So yeah. they're, they're just losing millions of dollars a day right now. Yeah, well, what's happened is projects are getting pushed, right? So everybody knows that oil is viable at some point. Everybody knows that the price of oil will go back up. And everybody knows that when it hits a certain point, the oil sands all of a sudden can be turned back on. So they're just pushing projects out and, and trying to time that just right. Got it. Got it. Well, 
I'm not going to throw in my two cents about the $20 that, uh, <laughs> that we talked about before we got on here. Uh, let's uh, not go there. Let's not go there. All right, let's move on to the next one. All right. All, all about that reserve base oil and gas asset deal activity, positive sign for the industry. Are, are we talking about some M&A and, and things like this? Yeah, it's you know how every time once in a while we'll joke about some author must have listened to our show that went and wrote his article. Well, that's the thing. You've been calling the <laughs> M&A season since, you know, episode two or something. This, this one kind of looks that way. So basically they're talking about, yes, it's M&A season. And they're also talking about all the cash that's parked on the side waiting uh, to actually pull the trigger. And we must have talked about that three or four times in the last couple of shows that I see that. I see all that capital sitting there waiting. Now, I thought the M&A activity would have heated up by now, and it hasn't. Um, but this article is, is basically going right down that line that that it's there, it's going to happen. There's a bunch of cash, a bunch of capital sitting on the side. Um, so it's, yeah, yeah. I had a quick conversation with a guy this morning who who basically just he was he was trying to make his way into the midstream, and and you know he's like, it's just so much capital out. It just flooded the market. It's and- crazy. <laughs> it's there. There's more cash out there waiting out there in oil and gas than I've ever seen in my entire life. Wow. In Q, uh, it's a, what is it? In uh, Q1 uh, 2015, just 118 million in A&D deals took place in the U.S., whereas in Q1 2014, approximately 11.8 billion. So is the, I hate to use this word, the Delta. <laughs> Let's circle that's back a, on that. Can you ping right me? Word. Can you ping me on that one? Um, but is the difference between those just sitting around? Yes. Oh my gosh, that's a lot of yeah. money. It's actually more than that, right? So it's about three hundred billion dollars <laughs> is on the sidelines right now, waiting for, for uh, M and A activity right now. That's a, that's as big as Exxon, right? So wow. as much money as Exxon has is waiting in the hands of private equity companies right now, waiting to, to pull the trigger in the oil and gas industry. That is absolutely insane. Well, it sounds like maybe it's time for Tesoro. So we have a, a story from Seeking Alpha: Best time for Tes- uh, Tesoro to acquire both pipeline and refining assets. Is it time yes, for them to pull the trigger? Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, Tesoro's is, is a major player in the West, right? And they're an uh, independent oil refiner. So they're in that same world as Valero and uh, Phillips 66 and Marathon. But they have mostly the West part of the country, which unfortunately includes California, which is not a place that you really want to try to do business as a refiner because they're California. Right. Uh, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Just, yeah, um, simple enough. But, yeah, simple enough. Um, but they, they like all refineries right now, they're making money hand over fist. And this is an article in Seeking Alpha about how they need to use that cash and expand and buy assets. Where are they looking to buy or are they not looking and this person is recommending? Well, so, um, so they're, they're, they're looking to buy, um, you know, across the country, just like they're small independent operators, they're small independent pipeline operators. Mm. And so they're looking to b- pick up those assets and also looking to uh, upgrade some of their refineries, right? So retrofit them, um, you know, maybe take the chance to retrofit them to, re- to uh, refine sweet crude, but put that money back into your refinery so you can increase capacity, so you can increase margins. So if, if we talked about this for other shows, the refineries now are starting to try to control their transport costs. So they're buying pipelines not to sell transport to other people, but so they can transport their own crude and gas, their own refineries and control that cost. So that's another thing that Tessera is looking to do. Oh, they're looking at controlling more of the value chain as we keep talking yeah, about. That's right. Nice. I'm starting to understand some of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go right into things I definitely don't understand. 
Yeah, um, you do. Taiwanese company proposes 9.4 billion chemical project in Louisiana. Um, yeah, just fill us in. Uh, this is an ethylene cracker, which we talked about before. There's a whole gaggle of ethylene crackers being built in the Gulf coast of the U.S. right now because natural gas is so cheap, and an ethylene cracker turns natural gas into plastics. So this is yet another large, you know, $9.4 billion CapEx project. Now think about that. $9.4 billion, and that's this one ethylene cracker uh, or one ethylene cracker complex. Um, think of all the jobs, all the construction. It says right here it would include 1,200 permanent jobs. Yeah. I mean, this is just great. It's another example of how the oil and gas industry is driving the economy in the U.S. Even in this low crude market, downstream's on fire, right? Downstream's hiring people. Downstream's paying top dollars. Downstream's paying taxes. Downstream's building stuff. So it's just great. Yeah, there's there's very large numbers in this article. And I just wanted to dip my toe in this one, and, and then we can uh, talk a little bit more on, on the next one, which is ethylene, ethylene crackers are cropping up. And this is actually uh, from up there in, in uh, Wheeling, West Virginia, which is wow. kind of where my grandma's from. Cool. Well, grandma may be able to get a job at BASF. <laughs> nah, she, she doesn't need no job. She She just walks around. That's what she does. She walks. For, I, I, a five-year-old kid cannot keep up with how much my grandma walks. In, I believe it in the in the hills out there. It's crazy, but anyway. So yeah, there's a lot. So so there's more crackers being built up there too. Yeah. So most of them are being built here in the Gulf Coast for several reasons. Um, one is that we have the infrastructure in place to be able to uh, transport gas and crude from anywhere in the country down to the Gulf Coast. Another one is that our respective state governments in the Gulf Coast appreciate the jobs and the the economic boost that this stuff brings. So they make rules and laws that make it easier to do business here. But because of the boom in natural gas all over the country, you're seeing ethylene crackers being built in places that you wouldn't have normally thought one would be built, such as Virginia. Hmm. That's interesting. And, and I was actually going to ask you to speak to this comment, but we actually just already spoke to it because uh, there was some person um, who says here, uh, in spite of their size, the modern chemical plants require a total crew of perhaps 100 people to run three shifts. I don't know where that came from because I heard 1200 in the last article. Yeah, it's uh, it, that's going to vary depending on the complexity of the petrochemical refiner, right? right? So if they're just doing one thing, if they're literally just making uh, ethylene, it doesn't take a big crew. But if they're making methanol and ethylene and, you know, whatever other petrochemicals out there, then you have a much more diverse and larger workforce. So wh what the heck is the difference between, I don't even know what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> So those are different um, petroleum byproducts, right? That are used in in the used all to make all kinds of everything from makeup to your car's windshield to your your scooter's paint job. Okay, yeah, I ride a scooter. Deal with it, people. <laughs> he rides it rather well. I, I I do when it's not in the shop, um, <laughs> as it as it always is. But let's not go there. But so um, so those are just two different byproducts. You were saying. There's thousands, thousands, and thousands of petrochemicals that are made from oil and gas that literally are used in everything. Your iPhone could not exist without the petrochemicals from oil and gas. Um, you couldn't buy baby aspirin. Um, I just posted a tweet, uh, I think yesterday, 89% um, of everything in a hospital comes from the oil and gas industry. Wow. That's, so the modern hospital couldn't exist. I mean, just couldn't exist without the oil and gas industry. So it... it is ethylene then there then they form it into plastics or is there some other step that I'm not understanding yet? Yeah, no, it's ethylene is the building blocks of plastics. And you gotta figure out what type of plastic you're gonna make, and then you start that whole process because there's a you know, thousand different types of plastics. 
All right. Well, I've I've uh, displayed my ignorance uh, pretty well on this one. Um, I will I will wade out of these waters and go into the Gulf of Mexico, where this is the coolest darn story. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> I said it to so, you. I was like, "This is freaking awesome!" Uh, exploring resilient reefs on oil platforms in the Gulf of Mexico from NationalGeographic.com. Yeah, so this is the Rigs to Reef program, right? Which is the national program, and basically, uh, what the U.S. Wildlife and Fisheries and National Parks um, organizations have worked out with the oil and gas industries. Look, we've figured out that when you have one of these rigs offshore, stuff starts to grow on it, like coral and algae and sponges, and then that attracts fish. And then you have this whole ecosystem built around your oil rig. So when you're finished with it, can we kind of keep it? And the oil and gas industry said, you know what? It's something good for the planet. It's encouraging marine life. It's helping marine life have a home. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll help you out. So what happens is when they, you know, um, when you get to the end of the life of an offshore well, this is in the Gulf of Mexico, but this is also done all over the world. Um, what they do is when they decommission, they basically cut it off. Um, they do everything to seal that well, right, to cap it. And then they cut the rig, the top side, what's called the top side. The top side is part of the rig that's out of the water where the crew quarters are, where the uh, drilling is and storage and generators and all that stuff. They cut that part off so that it's about 20 feet below the water and they leave the rig in place. And you build this entire ecosystem of, of like everything from coral to sponges and fish that lives on this rig. And so it's actually helping the Gulf of, Gulf of Mexico um, support its wildlife. It's just so cool. And they got a video and they've got, you know, I've never really um, wanted to do much scuba diving, but this looks just too fascinating for me. I might have to yeah, take I've, a trip. Yeah, I've, I've done a decent amount of scuba diving. And let me tell you, it's um, it's one thing to see this in pictures. It's another to see it in person. I mean, you talk about awe-inspiring. I mean, just crazy, beautiful, gorgeous, wonderful stuff. Well, you're from South Louisiana, though, so you you, you grew up doing that. Not scuba diving. Cajuns don't scuba dive. <laughs> Cajuns, they just wrestle the gators. <laughs> they wrestle the gators. Cajun go goes fishing by throwing dynamite in the water and rigged trout lines and everything else. Scuba diving was much later in life. <laughs> much later in life. That's just that was too uh, that was just too bougie for you growing up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, thus concludes our our normal articles. We have some extras here. Schlumber uh, J uh, IBM story that Mark touched on last week. Um, and then if you could just. Toss in a comment about Libya's <laughs> Tripoli government captures Russia flag tanker smuggling oil. Are you kidding me? What has <laughs> happened to this world? I'm telling you right now, they're throwing snowballs in hell. So Libya captures a pirate Russia smuggling black market oil. What has happened to this world? That's just ludicrous. Yeah. So 11 Russian crew have <laughs> been detained in a very interesting story. And then also, uh, speaking of the Gulf of Mexico, the U.S. is to, set to offer 42.7 million acre Gulf uh, it, gas le uh, oil and gas lease sale. Is that a normal offering, Mark? Yeah, and, and it's it's not going to pick big dollars because the crude's so low right now. Right, but they just have to throw it out there? Well, it's, it's the way the government makes money. A, a lot of people don't know this, but the biggest moneymaker in the U.S. for oil and gas is the U.S. government. It's not. It's not Chevron. Right. It's not Anadarko. It's the government, because the most of the land that uh, you can extract oil and gas on, especially offshore, is owned by the government. And so they bid this stuff out. So you you pay. I mean, you may pay two billion dollars for a lease, a deep water lease in the Gulf of Mexico, and that gives you ten years to try to make that money back plus some profit, and then it gets auctioned off again. So yeah. Well, yeah. I I think I've said this in a, in a show before, but. Uh, the government makes more money off Exxon than Exxon. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just 
freaking crazy. Um, all right. So we've been rolling into the commercial break, um, and I'm going to freestyle this a little bit because we are set to launch Oilfield Revenue University, but we're going to do a softer launch than we anticipated um, because we've been crazy busy with things like the Houston Energy Breakfast and other things. And also, uh, Mark has to pin me to the ground and slap me around sometimes and say, get a proof of concept. Um, and so, and so I want to roll this out to y'all. You've been hearing me talk about this every week, how, how, you know, drive traffic leads and sales in ways that no one in a, no small independent operator service company, midstream, upstream, downstream could ever do before and be able to, you know, outrank billion dollar competitors. Well, here's what I'm going to do. What do you want to learn? Because I'm going to throw it out to you and I'm actually going to create a new page. So when you go to tribrocket.com forward slash TW revenue, I'm going to have some different courses that you can choose from. And depending on which ones get the most interest, or if you just tweet me or email me, james at tribrocket.com, what I'm going to do is I'm going to record an hour-long um, an hour long training session on whatever y'all want to learn about. So whether that's social media marketing, whether that's uh, search engine optimization, how to set up a website, whatever those things are, and then I'm going to release them for the ridiculously low price of $47. Wow. So let me make sure I get this straight. You're basically want our listeners to reach out to you and tell you what they're struggling with. And in return, when you, once you figure out what that number one thing is for less than $50, you'll give them an hour long training. That is correct. That's it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, Where do I sign up? <laughs> right. Uh, well, you already signed up last year. Remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and so, I paid way more than forty-seven dollars. <laughs> yeah, you have to put up with me in perpetuity. Um, so, so folks, I'm 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 serious here though. Tribrocket.com forward slash TW Revenue. I'm gonna just throw out. I, I've actually have all of the twelve courses, you know, names already put together for what we were set to launch, and I'm just gonna do them one at a time based on what you want. And maybe there's things that I don't know that you're looking for. So, um, that's, that's what, that's what we're, uh, we're transitioning into and it's still going to be freaking awesome. And it's crazy cheap now too, because we're going to charge $3,000 for those 12 videos. Um, yeah, and, and it could be exactly what your audience needs help with. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So enough of that. Let's go over. Oh yeah. I can't forget the weekly onion. Oh, <laughs> I have to beat that one out. I hope you forgot it. <laughs> oh, fun toy band because of three stupid kids. And I skipped the dead part, but <laughs> it just reminds me of the old Dan Aykroyd from Saturday Night Live. Where, Come on, kids. You know, this is safe right here. Bag of glass. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. All right. So um, tribrocket.com forward slash events will take you directly to Mr. Mark LaCour's um, email opt-in where you can put in your email and get the events that are happening not only in Houston but around the globe sent right to you every month. And we have a couple of things coming up this week, which is the uh, 28th annual forum. Oil is what? Now what? Views on a volatile market. Um, what's this all about? As some, this is some very smart oil and gas economists talking about what's going on in this low crude market, right? 
what are the factors feeding into this and what what are their predictions looking forward nice yeah everybody's looking for that right now and you can you can um go let's see that's september monday september 21st and it's at the uh bank it's a banquet dinner at hotel zaza not zaza energy or oil right no yeah different different okay all right and then the what's the mw networking lunch about that's Marion Winston's networking lunch. I think we've probably talked about it once or twice before. Marion Winston is a, is the godfather of oil and gas. This guy's forgotten more about the oil and gas industry than I know. Um, he started this networking lunch, I think, in the 70s, and it's continued. Okay, yeah, we haven't then. talked about him in a while. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and it's actually now, it's been handed off. It's, it's run by a, a separate group now, um, and basically, you just show up, bring some business cards, you buy your own lunch and you get to meet people from all throughout the industry. And I've seen people find jobs there. I've seen people pick up customers there. Um, I actually picked up a client there myself one time. So it's, it's the grassroots of networking in oil and gas. Hey, I just got my new business cards. That'd be a good place to go show them off. <laughs> show them off. Yeah. They're stainless steel beer bottle openers. <laughs> um, all right. And then we got a, uh, iTunes reviews and we haven't had any in the last couple of weeks, so I'm I'm feeling um I'm 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 just I need I need some more attention. I'm a middle child. So go to tryrocket.com forward slash reviews and that will take you right into iTunes where you can uh leave a review. We love five and four stars, but if you hate us, just just hate on us, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> folks. It's um we do this every week for you, and it's a lot more work than it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, because editing, I have a me. lot of editing to do after yeah. we get off this. So we don't ask you to pay for this. We don't ask you to, to buy our stuff. We ask you for one thing. Can you just please, please take two minutes out of your day, go to iTunes, give us a review, and it helps us spread the word, which helps everybody. Hey, I want them to buy my stuff, okay, Mark? <laughs> Stop throwing me under the bus. All right. And then, and then we we mentioned at the top of the show, so tribrocket.com forward slash LinkedIn. Come into the LinkedIn group. We've got a lot more conversations that are starting to pick up there because um, – the hammer james Han the second i think i think i was a little strong in the messaging and so i reworded the welcome email to not offend people yeah it's it's just we hate spammers and i think we, we both probably came across a little bit too hard on that but come join our group we're we're friendly we promise <laughs> it's, it's a way for you to ask questions and influence the show if there's stuff you want us to talk about talk about in the linkedin group james and i will watch the traffic and if enough people have the same interest we'll put it in the show this show entirely was guided by the LinkedIn group because you you were um, out you know doing things throughout the throughout the afternoon. I had the opportunity finally to refine my Google news feeds, um, which you know is a whole other story. But but it was it was a result of of you know well first of all we did you know look at the numbers, but we have so many people hitting us up with different stories and different angles right. and, and it's amazing to actually, yeah, there, there was a, a listener uh, at the, at the Houston energy breakfast this morning and it, it's fun to get recognized, um, yeah. you know, for, for something good for once. <laughs> um, so, um, all right. Well, I have, I have definitely rambled a lot in this episode and I don't think I have anything else. What about you, Mark? No. So folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys.
this thing sucks. 